The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. With me to Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23, and we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 43. Luke 23, verses 26 through 43, in much of the same way as last week, I'll be commenting on some of these verses, though not so much, not to the extent I did last week. And, uh, of course, 34 will be our text verse once again. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you for this time to be able to open up your word and to be able to worship you and to have the Spirit speak to our hearts. And we just pray that you'd have your way with us now and that you'd mold us into the Christians that you'd have us to be. And we certainly pray for anybody here tonight, this evening. I don't think we have anybody like this, but... You know the hearts, you control the reins of all men, and we pray if there might be someone unsaved tonight that you'd convict them of their sin and lead them to repentance and faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, Luke 23, verse 26. And as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Not, they were, again, as I mentioned last week, they weren't taking turns, not after Jesus, but along with Jesus, helping him to carry the cross because he needed uh, assistance at that point from his, because he was so physically weak. In verse 27, and there followed him a great company of people. So there was a great crowd that followed after to see this persecution. And I'm sure it was quite a mixture in the crowd. There were some, those who had believed in Jesus. There were others who perhaps had received miracles uh, from him or, or, or saw Jesus perform uh, miracles. Others followed because they wanted to ensure his death, that he was crucified like the religious Jewish uh, uh, rulers and so forth. But the Bible says, And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. Verse 28, But Jesus, turning unto him, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. Jesus was fulfilling the covenant of redemption. He said, Women, mourners, please don't weep for me. Please don't mourn for me. I'm fulfilling the Father's will. I'm going to the cross as must needs be. The Bible goes on to say, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Jesus was saying, in a short time, God will bring forth judgment upon Israel for their rejection and crucifixion of the Son of God. God decreed our redemption in the precise way it happened, but the Jews were still ultimately responsible for their sinful actions in it. Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman general Titus in AD 70. And interesting enough, Israel did not become a nation. And even though then they were in captivity under Roman rule, Israel did not become a nation again until 1948. So it was quite some time. Verse 29, For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, 
And, and what the Bible is saying here is that this statement will be a common expression spoken by people. Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never gave suck. Blessed are those, in other words, who have had no children, that they didn't have to starve to death or be killed by the sword, killed by their enemies. Verse 30, Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. That they should die rather than continue to live in their intolerable circumstances, their intolerable misery and distress. Verse 31, For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in a dry? So the tree here is a metaphor to express the righteousness and the innocence of Christ, full of grace, goodness, and righteousness, not worthy of being cut down and put to death. He is a moist green tree, the tree of life. The dry tree is symbolic of wicked men, full of trespasses and sin, bearing no fruit, like a dead, dry, withered tree, fit for the fire. This is intended primarily for the Jews who had rejected Christ and crucified him. In contradistinction from Christ, these dry trees are fit to be honed down and cast into the fire of God's vengeance and eternal judgment. If God the Father spared not his own son, as he, the Bible tells us, he certainly did not. He did not abate or lessen his wrath upon his own son. In agreement with his divine justice, while Christ became sin for us, Romans 8.32, who had never sinned against, Christ, or sinned against the Father, what fiery condemnation is upon those who must answer for their sins in their own person? I would hate to be that person, wouldn't you? And praise God by his mercy and his grace. If you're a Christian tonight, you won't have to. Praise God. Hebrews 10.31 is a fearful thing. It's a frightful thing. It's a terrible thing to fall in the hands of the living God. In a more immediate temporal sense, in terms of God's judgment, if the Romans were willing to commit the atrocities that they did against Christ, the perfect God-man, the man without sin, what would they be willing to do to the Jewish people? Verse 32, And there were also two other male factors led with him, led with Christ, to be put to death. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the male factors, one on the right hand, the other on the left. And our text verse, verse 34, Then said, Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them, to write him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription, or a written inscription, also was written over him in the letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the male factors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answer rebuked him. He rebuked him for his sin, 
saying, Dost not thou fear God? Seest thou art in the same condemnation? Piling sin on sin? Sin with more sin? Both criminals initially mocked Christ, according to Matthew 27, 44, and Mark 15, 32. However, the Lord brings one of them to repentance and faith. Verse 41, And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. So God had convicted one of the, the thieves. God had convicted him of his sin and the just punishment that he deserved. And that's repentance. When God convicts you of your sin and the justice that you deserve for your sin. But this man had done nothing amiss. In Luke 23, 14, Pilate said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverted the people, and behold, I have examined him before you, have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof ye accuse him. We read similar statements from Matthew, from Pilate last week. Verse 42, And he, the thief, said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. So the thief, the criminal, the reprobate, you might say, acknowledges Jesus as his Lord and Savior, as his King Messiah, as his King of kings and Lord of lords. The thief had nothing to offer. He had nothing to bring. But repentance and faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But repentance and faith upon the Lord. Verse 43, And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today, this very day, shalt thou be with me in paradise. And really the emphasis is on the be with me part. It wasn't that he'd be in heaven with many mansions. No, it's that he would be immediately in the presence of Christ. Immediately in the presence and the fellowship of our dear Savior. And he would be in his presence throughout all eternity. That's the real blessing of heaven. It's not things that we'll get there when we get to heaven. It's being able to be in the loving arms of our Savior throughout all eternity. The curse... What's the curse? What is the real curse? It's alienation from God forever. All right. So that's our, that's our scripture that I wanted to cover tonight. And keep it open there to, uh, or this afternoon to Luke 23, 34, because we're going we're gonna to come back to that. But for, I wanted to really quickly review for those who were here last week, already forgot and for those who maybe weren't here. So let's review. Last week we discussed that Jesus said seven final sayings while he was crucified upon the cross. We looked at the first of Jesus' last seven sayings. Luke twenty three thirty four. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus' first saying, we said, was a prayer, and it was a prayer of forgiveness. We noted the emphasis Jesus placed upon prayer, having the wherewithal to pray while he was on the cross, and the manner in which he prayed. 
with absolute confidence and faith in his heavenly Father to answer his prayer. Jesus demonstrated the importance of prayer and the efficacy of prayer when it is done in faith to the Father. We are always to pray, especially in times of persecution or distress, casting all our care upon him, 1 Peter 5, 7. That we would not be fearful, anxious, or worrisome. No, not the children of God. Not as the world, but as children of God, trusting in the heavenly, our Heavenly Father. Prayer is a form of worship, but is also a ministry. We can and should participate throughout our lives. Our Christian life started with prayer. Oh God, save me! Have mercy upon me, O oh Lord! Crying out to God. It should continue in prayer and end in prayer. Jesus prayed in like manner we are to follow his footsteps. Through Christ's prayer from the cross, Christ demonstrated the superiority. I used the word preeminence last week. The superiority and triumph of his love for his people by praying for the Father to forgive those who persecuted and crucified him. It was a mediatorial, high priestly prayer, Christ interceding to the Father on behalf of his people. Christ's prayer revealed the purpose of his coming and the necessity of his death. Jesus came to redeem his people and secure their forgiveness from God for their sins by satisfying the just wrath of God in our place, thereby reconciling us to God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus prayed for the atonement to be realized according to the covenant of redemption he had with the Father before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. God had determined to provide a Savior, a once-for-all sacrifice to all who believe, Hebrews 10.10-18. And these are all scriptures that we read last week, that's why I'm just... You know, refreshing your, your mind of them. So this week, there's a question. One of the questions that we didn't answer last week was this. Was Christ asking God the Father to forgive his enemies based upon their ignorance? Was this why Christ was asking the Father's forgiveness? Because his crucifiers were ignorant. Was it based upon their ignorance? Christ was not petitioning the Father to forgive the people who crucified him because they were ignorant of what they did. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, although at first glance it might appear that way. Many, of course, were ignorant of who they were crucifying, of the enormity of their crime. They did not fully understand who Jesus was and the gravity of what they were doing, the evil that they were committing and putting Christ, the anointed one of God, the Messiah, to death. They did not know Jesus was the Messiah, nor the prophecies concerning him. Though perhaps they should have known, since he fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy concerning the passion of the Messiah. Acts 3.18 tells us, But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. 
observe a small subset of the messianic prophecies that were fulfilled prior to and including Christ's crucifixion. His betrayal by Judas Iscariot, Psalm 41.9, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread and had lifted up his heel against me. Betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11.12, And I said unto them, If ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they waited for my price, 30 pieces of silver. Mocked and insulted, Psalm 22, 7 through 8. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake their head, saying, the Bible speaks of the wagging of the head, right? They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Scourged and spat on. Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to the smiters. That was when Jesus was whipped. And my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. His face marred, Isaiah 52, 14. I hope you're finding these as interesting as I did, just to go back. It's not often that we actually look at these uh, prophetical scriptures, but it's interesting because the Jews, these were read, as we're going to see in a moment, these were read every Sabbath day in the synagogue to the Jews. His face marred, Isaiah 52, 14, As many were astonished at thee, his visage or his face was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Despised and rejected by his people, Isaiah 53, 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Accused by false witnesses, Psalm thirty-five, eleven. False witnesses did rise up. They laid to my charge things that I knew not. Silent when accused, Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Soldiers divided up his clothing and casting lots for his coat. And we read that straight out of Matthew 27 last week and Luke 23 this week. Psalm 22, 18, They parted my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. His hands and feet pierced. Psalm 22, 16, They pierced my hands and my feet. Have I worn you out yet? We got a few more here. Given vinegar and gall to drink. Psalm 69, 21. They gave me also gall for my meat. Remember that was given him as for medicinal purpose to try to numb his pain. And he, Jesus refused. And in my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. He suffered vicariously. In other words, on behalf of others, for you and I. And all those who would receive him as their Lord and Savior. Isaiah 53, 4 through 5. And also verses 11 through 12. Isaiah 53, 4 through 5, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. In verses 11 through 12, He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. 
By his, by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Crucified with the transgressors, the two thieves, Isaiah 53, 12, that we just read, and he was numbered with the transgressors. No bone broken, Psalm 34, 20. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. No deceit in his mouth, and buried with the rich. Remember how Nicodemus sought, or uh, uh, Joseph of Arimathea sought his body to bury him in his tomb, that rich man that had never been used. He, he sought his body from Pilate, and Pilate gave permission or leave for him to go do that. Isaiah 53, 9, And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. And that was one of the things that Jesus was accused of by the Jewish religious people, that he was a false teacher. And clearly the scripture says that Jesus was not a false teacher or deceiver of any kind. We read in Acts chapter 13, verses 27 through 28, that the Jews read from the voices of the prophets on every Sabbath day. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read, every Sabbath day they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, no just reason for putting Christ to death, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. So they were... They were fixed upon murdering Christ. They knew he was innocent, and they wanted him murdered. John 3.19, And this is the condemnation that light has come to the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Men are blinded by their own wickedness. Ephesians 4.18 tells us that men are blinded because of their own heart, the wickedness of their own heart. The Jewish religious leaders in particular did not know messianic prophecies were being fulfilled when they were fulfilled right in front of their eyes, nor when they were directly involved in fulfilling a prophecy firsthand, right under their nose. Isn't it kind of amazing when you read through those prophecies, when you read the account? I know we read a little bit more of the account last week, his crucifixion as well as his death. Um, isn't it just amazing that the Jews didn't at least see some of these prophecies being fulfilled right in front of their eyes? Some of these verses seem crystal clear. And, and these are, that was just a subset, right, of many of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. But there's other, there's other verses like the, uh, uh, the Messiah being born in, in Bethlehem that they could have easily verified, right? Uh, many, many others, uh, Psalm 16.10, that Christ would stay in the grave three days and raise from the dead, and clearly he did. And rather than receiving that, right, and, and that validating their the Jews wanting to see a miracle and Christ fulfilling that miracle, what do they do? They try to cover it up. And we're going to talk directly towards that, uh, uh, towards that specific issue in a little bit about knowingly and willfully Rejecting Christ. All right. Um, 
So their spiritual blindness, the Jewish religious leaders in particular, their spiritual blindness was a manifestation, excuse me, manifestation of their guilt. In 1 Corinthians 2.8, the Bible says, which none of the princes, none of the religious Jewish rulers of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Matthew 27.25 tells us the Jews were even willing to imprecate Christ's blood upon them and their children for any punishment that might occur as a result of his death. And it might have been one of my kids I was telling, that just makes my spiritual hair stand up. That these people actually cried out in the crowd, saying, His blood be upon us. And so you see this, this the destruction of Jerusalem that came within a generation that was all part of the Lord's judgment upon Israel. Religion is a poor substitute and stumbling block to a sincere union and communion with the Lord. I lived that myself for many years, being a Catholic, but not knowing the Lord, not having a sincere relationship with the Lord by faith through grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many people have religion, but it's a very poor substitute. And it's a huge stumbling block to a sincere union and communion with the Lord. Christ was a rock of offense to the religious Jews. To every human being, Christ is either the means of salvation or the means of judgment. First Peter chapter 2, verses 7-8, through 8, the Bible says, Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. Isn't Christ precious to you that believe? Amen. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, or the stone which the builders rejected. The same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient. Whereunto also they were appointed, vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. In Romans 9.22. Some of Christ's crucifiers had heard the gospel and had seen the work of the Holy Spirit through him firsthand yet were filled with malice, envy, and obstinacy in their hearts. The scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the elders. Matthew twelve thirty one tells us, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was knowingly and willfully attributing the work of the Holy Spirit through Christ and the disciples to Satan during that specific dispensational period. And you can see uh, Matthew 12.24 on that for a little more clarification. We're even more culpable of our ignorance today than in times past. Old Testament or New Testament. We have a complete, clear revelation of the will of God, the Bible. We have the complete canon of Scripture, the Word of God. Amen? The Bible is not only printed printed like it was back in the printing press days, right? We're long from those days. The Bible is not only printed, but electronically disseminated in multiple versions 
in various languages all over the world and is more portable than ever. It fits even in the size of your hand. You have a cell phone, a lot of you have a Bible program. I know Brother Petro does, I'm sure there's many others. Yeah, okay, Brother Moline, yeah. Very portable, right? And you can actually read it, even though this is small. Even, even older guys like us can actually read it, because we can blow it up, right? So you could take it with you wherever you go, right? The Lord has provided us with his Bible. And we cannot plead ignorance of its content except to condemn our own laziness. God has spoken, and by his word we will be judged. We are ignorant of many things, and the fault and blame rests not upon God, but upon us. A sin of ignorance is still, is still sin. Whether we are conscious of it or not, and sin is never arbitrarily excused, ignored, or otherwise overlooked by the righteous and holy God, but requires atonement. A.W. Pink made this statement. He said, God is holy, and he will not lower his standard of righteousness to the level of our ignorance. Thus, all sin provokes the wrath of Almighty God and requires divine judgment and condemnation and must be paid for by death, eternal separation from God. This is the second death. Revelation 20, 14 through 15, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 21, 8, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The parable of the rich man. And remember, this is a parable. It's not meant to be naturally exact. The parable of the rich man of Lazarus teaches us that the immutable or unchanging decree of God has fixed the state of the blessed and the damned upon death. Eternal communion with God or eternal separation from God. Luke 16, 23 through 26. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. Imagine that. Imagine you were in such eternal torments that you were begging for a drop of water, for someone to just touch your tongue with water. You see, when people die and go to hell, they don't die spiritually, right? Their soul is alive, and it's alive forever, and it's forever alive in torments, in the lake of fire. It's a terrible thing, and it's certainly not something we should celebrate in. But it's a reality, isn't it, for the unsaved? This ought to compel us with love to share the gospel whenever and wherever we can. The Bible goes on to say, verse 25, we're looking at Luke 16, 25, But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receiveth thy good things, and likewise lathereth evil things, and now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. 
And beside all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed. So after you die, that's it. It's a fixed condition. You're either eternity with the Lord forever, or you're separated from God forever. So that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Thence. That's the king's English there. Therefore Christ on the cross does not make his intercessory plea, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, for the forgiveness of his crucifiers based upon their ignorance, but upon his propitiatory sacrifice, his atonement for sin for them in anticipation of it. The ignorance of the people who accused, crucified, mocked, and railed upon Christ is mentioned as descriptive of the persons Christ prays for and is part of his priestly office to exercise compassion on the ignorant and them that are gone out of the way. Psalm 14.3 and Romans 3.12. Brother Dalton read that passage of scripture earlier, actually. Romans 3.12 was part of that. Romans 3. Jesus prayed for those persons whom the Father had given him out of this world, the elect ones which some of them were among the crucifiers. And therefore, at that particular time, were enemies of God. Referred to as transgressors, Isaiah 53.12, which we read earlier, he made intercession for the transgressors. For those persons, the vessels of mercies that Romans 9.23 speaks to, and not the world, the Savior prays, not for everybody. No, God saves who he intends to save. We are all enemies of God prior to our our salvation, aren't we? So none of us should get on our spiritual high horse. I think it's, it's very important that we reflect upon that and we remember always as Christians, as children of God, where we came from and where God found us. Colossians 1, 20 through 22, And having made peace through the blood of the cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated. I don't know about you, but that was definitely me. I was alienated from God for some time, way too long. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. And by the way, if Jesus did that for you, don't you think he is able to accomplish that? I mean, he did. So we just have to believe it, right? I mean, if Jesus died to present our bodies holy and unblameable and unreprovable, why do we worry about losing our salvation? Why do we worry about losing our security? Our security is not based upon us. It's based upon Him. It's based upon Christ and what Christ did at the crucifixion. Suffering the wrath of Almighty God and dying, and three days later rising from the dead. Jesus is the believer's blessed mediator. And the correct verse for that is, is 1 Timothy 2.5. 
Jesus is our high priest, interceding on our behalf. Hebrews 4, 14-16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He became a man just like us. He became a human being. He had a human nature. And he suffered like we suffer in this body. And not just in this body, but all the stresses of life. All the distresses. All the heartache. So our high priest is not one that cannot understand our infirmities. But was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 2.18 For in that he himself had suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Because Christ actually knows how it is to be human. He's actually experienced it. He is able to help us. He's able to relieve us in times of need. God reveals to us the efficacy of Christ's prayer on the cross. What, was, what happened? What was the result of Christ's prayer? Did the Father answer Christ's prayer? When Christ said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The fruit of Christ's prayer is soon realized approximately six weeks after his crucifixion, when many who had a part in his crucifixion were converted to Christ under Peter's preaching on the day of what? Pentecost. Anybody recall a lot of people getting saved during that time? Yeah. Acts 2.41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto him about 3,000 souls. Now, I have never seen 3,000 souls saved. And these are genuine conversions because they're recorded in the word of God. That's, that's incredible. What was the power? What was the power behind that gospel that Peter preached? Peter's eloquence was not the cause of 3,000 converted souls by a single sermon, but the Holy Spirit working through Peter in great power to answer the Savior's prayer. We read, we read again in Acts chapters 3 and 4, Peter and John go to Solomon's porch in the temple, that's in Acts 3.11, and preach the gospel of Christ where another 5,000 souls are converted. Acts 4.4, Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. Notably, during Peter's sermon, he used similar words to the words that Christ used in his prayer on the cross. In Acts 3.17, the Bible says, And now, brethren, I wot, or I know, that through ignorance ye did it, as did your rulers. Christ prayed for his people's salvation even before his crucifixion. He prayed for your and my salvation even before his crucifixion. John 17, 20 says, Neither pray I for these alone, that is, Jesus' disciples that were presently with him, but for them also which shall believe on me 
through their word. The preaching as the gospel was preached in every generation going forward. And then lastly here, at the few minutes that we have, I'd like to speak a little bit about loving our enemies. Kind of sticks out like a sore thumb, right? When Christ prayed on the cross to forgive. As he's praying for those who have his enemies and those who had crucified him. During the Sermon on the Mount, Christ said the following words in Matthew 5.44, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Christ practiced what he preached. On the cross, he perfectly exemplified his teaching on the Mount of Transfiguration. If Christ prayed for his murderers, which were clearly the very worst of sinners, we have encouragement to pray for our enemies also. As disciples of Christ, may we follow his example and determine to pray in faith to the Father for the enemies of God, and we too shall pray effectively for lost sinners. I don't know about you, but I know I don't do that enough. I don't pray for my enemies, not just enemies against me, but enemies against the cross, right? Against the church, against the cause of Christ. So I just assume that we could all do that more than, that, more than we do, if we're honest. All right, I want to close with this in a somewhat closing doxology on the humility of Christ. It's in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. The ultimate humility was Christ leaving heaven and all the splendor of it the worship of in heaven that he received in humbling himself and becoming a pitiful man, such as you and I. The humility of Christ, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, in other words, he thought it wasn't something to be held on to or clung to. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So a question I want to ask myself, I want you to ask yourself tonight, is have you humbled yourself before God? The Christian's walk, the Christian's life. It's a life of humility. It's a life of humbling yourself before God. Christ is our ultimate example. Just ask yourself today, have you humbled yourself before God today? Most of us are in church today, and we're feeling pretty good probably because we know we at least obeyed God, right, And this this area, but think back through this past week. 
Have you humbled yourself to God? Have you submitted yourself to God in every way that you know God wants you to submit? If you've never received Christ, you need to humble yourself before God. You need to recognize that you there's nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. There's nothing you can add to Christ's perfect life and death and resurrection. Christ paid it all and he secured it all. And you need to throw away your pride, your self-pride. You need to get rid of the idea that there's actually something in you that's redeemable. Not that I might find redeemable. I'm talking about a holy, perfect God that a holy, perfect, and just God might find redeemable. Something better than what his son could provide. Let's pray. Father, we know as Christians, we know as your children, there's so many times when we don't humble ourselves before you, whether it's prayer, or whether it's regularly coming to your word, whether it's even obeying you and intending your house, whether it's loving our wives like we should, maybe it's provoking our children, maybe it's not being the best worker that we could be. Maybe it's not being honest at times. Many, many things. We just ask for your help and these areas that we struggle in as individuals and just ask that you just help us in those areas. Help us to, we want to glorify you. We want to please you in every area of our life. We just ask for your help in doing that. And Lord, we just pray that you'd grow us to the point that we are more and more like you as we progress through our Christian life. That when people see us, they would see you in us and you would be glorified by that. And we just praise your name now. We thank you for this service tonight, that we could hear your word. Thank you for that. Thank you for the word of God. And thank you for our fellowship here at Berean Baptist Church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.